We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am very excited to have Brioni Scott, Dr. Brioni Scott, on the program. She is an Australian educator and columnist and the principal of Winona in North Sydney, Australia. It's an independent K-12 girls' school. Dr. Scott has a master's and doctorate in education from the University of Sydney, specializing in girls' education, technology and pedagogy, motivational theory, and choice in education. Prior to Winona, Dr. Scott was principal of Roseville College. She has worked as a systems analyst for Italian computer firm Olivetti and spent time volunteering as an emergency technician with the Wheaton Rescue Squad in in Maryland in the United States. Dr. Scott speaks regularly on educational and parenting issues at community forums and conferences. Dr. Scott, welcome to Transformative Principal. Thank you so much. It's lovely to speak to you. Well, it's lovely to speak to you as well. And this month, we're doing a little special on um, on principles of very unique schools that are catering to a specific type of student. And so you are at an all-girls school. And how is your approach different than if you were at a regular school? And what are some of the things that you have learned about leading specifically young women in a, P- in a K-12 environment? Yeah, it's a great question, particularly because so many of the single-sex schools that were traditionally set up are actually under threat for a, a number of reasons, um, not least of which um, is usually financial, is often financial. And so particularly boys' schools will often take girls 
uh, and absorb goals into either help with enrollments and to help with what I think is intriguingly called the socialization of the boys. Now, that in itself is a whole other conversation around, you know, the role of women to keep and monitor men's behavior when in fact men are quite capable of monitoring their own behavior they I would have thought. But the challenge around the co-ed stuff that you get a lot of critics who go you know yeah but it's a co-ed world and I go yeah and how's that working for you because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's like um, in your part of the world but in our part of the world that we still have a huge gender pay gap I mean effectively um you know, men could stop working in October and we would we would still keep working. Like there, there is a gap of about two months in terms of our pay differential. Uh, we are having huge conversations in our culture around consent and what it means um, to get informed consent around any one of a number of issues. And I look at this and I go, now is not the time for us to be challenging how we educate young women if uh, the purpose of what we're doing is to say to them, you have voice, you have choice, you have agency, you have responsibility, you need to be standing up now and not waiting 40 years before you go, me too, or actually I wanted to do a different path but I, that pathway wasn't open to me. So um, what we do in a single-sex school school, and now I have to um, – Put a little asterisk there because you have to be aware of these stereotypes that are permeating our culture. So you can have a single-sex girls' school and it can be as stereotyped as anything, right? Right. And you can have a co-ed school and be acutely aware of the social forces that are playing the young people's lives. So in and of itself, being a single-sex girls' school doesn't actually mean anything. This is probably meant to be a two-second answer, for which I do apologise, but it is, it's interesting because historically when you look at how have women broken into uh, men's fields or fields that have traditionally been held by men, and overwhelmingly it is when you educate women separately and then empower them with what they need to be able to go out and then do this work. So if you look at medicine, for example, the way that you know women finally got into the colleges um, – and were accepted into the medical degrees, uh, but then weren't allowed to work in the hospitals. So they went through the hospitals run by Catholic nuns, or you know, like they they have created spaces where they were allowed to get good at what they did. And then the integration took place more easily because they were more confident. So I run a girls' school where I go. Actually, now these subjects are different than the subjects that you guys will have, but things like extension one and extension two mathematics, they are, they are all girls. Now, traditionally in, in co-ed schools, often you'll find, particularly in Western civilizations, that they are full of young men, but the women are not doing these subjects. You know, engineering studies where you're proactively offering these subjects that are traditionally held by, by men, physics and chemistry and so forth. So when you, when you have girls in a girls' school, they look up and they see the leadership is female, they see the leadership roles that need to be fulfilled are female. They see the subjects that normally or traditionally might be associated with one gender or another have, are full of women. And that mantra about you can't be what you can't see comes into effect. They can see this happening. They can they can witness it and are inspired to be able to follow their path too. It's not that I want them all to do STEM subjects. I want them to have the choice. Yeah, that I think is really important. Does that mean that all of your... Um, all of your administrators and teachers at the school are also female? No. Actually, that's the opposite. 
So um, when I first came into this school, it was about 11% male and we're now up to, I think, about 45% male and that, and now we don't worry about it because it just kind of men want to come and because it's a school. What, what we're demonstrating there is this concept of what a respectful relationships look like, particularly around power and, um, and what power looks like in the workplace. And the, the good thing about men, it's the same as women, is that they're not just men and women, they're an extraordinary array of personalities and character types. And what we're wanting our young women to see is that actually men and women can work in these leadership roles together and respectfully. We are open and educating our staff around what it means to be in equal relationships and to identify stereotypes when they come up to the fore. So often someone will apply for a job and you go, and they'll say, well, look, why a girls' school? And the, and the person, the applicant will say, well, because, you know, I'm just like over boys. I just need girls to be kind of like they're just so much easier. And I'm like, yeah. oh, <laughs> you haven't met our girls, right? Like, um, yes, in an environment where they're socialised to conform while the boys are given permission to hang from the chandeliers, sure, you know. Now, I'm talking in huge, I'm exaggerating here for effect, right? right. Um, the reality is these stereotypes are often quite um, – modified or they're there, they're present, but they're not immediately or obviously apparent, you know. So you're challenging the fact that how many times do you answer a question when a boy puts up his hand versus when a girl puts up his hand. And Sheryl Sandberg's um, TED talk on that was really interesting about how how we, we tolerate things for one gender than another. So you do need to train people around what this looks like. But I love men, which is a kind of line that will get quoted out of context, could get me in an enormous trouble. Um, and I want young women to see that actually the friendships are there and in an environment where we're aware and conscious of what we're doing, that there are good men who are in great leadership positions who, who can establish relationships with these girls that are respectful and honouring and, and that they also have to treat this huge array of men and all their personalities and characters with respect as well. And so, no, we we do want them. The idea is not that they go into a convent, you know, and, and just live with the women their entire life. The idea is that you empower and strengthen them so that when they do go out and they follow their passion, they don't get thwarted by the obstacles that, that are put across their path. They assume that they will, if they work hard, that they will succeed. Yeah, and that brings up a really interesting point because – Everybody has obstacles in their life, and some people, women in particular, have obstacles in certain areas and fewer obstacles in other areas. And so if you follow the traditional expectation of what a woman should be, then you're not going to run into any obstacles. But if you step outside that, like you you mentioned already with STEM careers, for example, that almost all of those higher level math classes are majority boys in them then you know you're going to have those obstacles and have to try to to get into get over those obstacles in a way that is appropriate and healthy and good for you as well as good for the the place where you're trying to get to and it, if yeah. if you're not if you're not aware of your inner strength and what you have and what you bring to the table, you're not going to be able to be successful in overcoming those obstacles. Is that too simplistic of a way to phrase that? Oh, we're, we're educators. It's never too simple if we've got a learning moment. No, I think that's right. And look, the greatest obstacle, because there are compounding obstacles, obviously. I mean, you can um, 
you know, and there'll be people who object to the fact that women are, are perceived as having to overcome obstacles. But, you know, poverty is a huge one. Like there's anything that reduces a person's agency in any way whatsoever is an obstacle, which basically means we're now dealing with life. Okay. And life is hard. Life is complex. Life requires, as you say, a certain inner confidence that you're going to navigate your way through without getting knocked out of the race. And one of the things you want is for young people, see, what we know about maths, for example, is, is that around about the fourth or fifth grade, um, both boys and girls are equally good at maths. The difference is that when you ask them about it, the girls think they're slightly worse and the boys think they're slightly better. So by, by nine or 10 or even younger potentially, but certainly the research I've read right about that, there is really quite a different perception of your own ability and whether you can navigate your way through something. Well, I mean, politely speaking, screw that, right? Like right. Th- there is, once you're going to start knocking out half the race on whatever grounds, right? So we're talking gender, but you can knock, you can knock out half the race on whatever grounds you want. Um, then who you've got coming to the fore is only a certain type of person um, who thinks a certain way. And I go, it was never our call or a society's call to make about what a person will do with their life. I'm not God. I don't get to choose what they do. Society doesn't get to dictate, well, because you've got a ponytail, you're going to go left and everyone else is going to go right. There has to be something that says to young people, how do you tap into who you are as a person? What is your story? What do you love? I want you, particularly when you're young, to try a whole heap of things because you have no idea you know, what you're going to thrive in. So I, I don't want you narrowing down to broadly. I don't want you buying into narratives about what you think you can and cannot do. I want you to experience a broad array of things that are open to everybody and then you start narrowing down as you get older what it is you want to focus in on. And even then, the traditional thought that you're going to choose one pathway and that's it for you. I'm like, no, that doesn't work for us anymore either. Like that whole concept that if you want to do archaeology, then also do a language. If you want to do architecture, then do physics. If you want to do um, a liberal arts degree, then make sure you put a maths or a science in there, you know, like, oh, I mean, there would be in a liberal arts degree anyway, but you know what I'm saying? Like you, because the creativity is at the nexus of these disciplines. It's not any one discipline. It's at the nexus of it. You need people who are going to focus on one. You need people who have the ability to integrate different disciplines. So that kind of work, that starts back in kindy, year one, year two, right? You know, and challenging the thinking about it. It's challenging parents. Oh, I was never good at maths. I'm like, really? Can you stop? Strikes me that you're, you know, in our in our setup, you're paying bills, you're paying school fees. You actually do know about money. So let's not be, you know, sending a narrative that because you're female or because you're giggly or because you're this or whatever that you can't do maths. It's like, stop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that's so important. And it's something that when when we did some work with our students on helping those who were struggling in math, we found that we had, we had a program that we implemented that was research-based and was effective. And one teacher implemented that program with fidelity, which is one of the phrases that I just hate because it totally ignores the people who are in front of her, but she did it. And those kids gained, you know, probably a year and a half worth in a year's time, which was great. Then we brought in another teacher who added to that work about mindset and about 
believing in yourself and having confidence and recognizing that you're not dumb, that you just don't get it yet. And those kids grew three to four grade levels in one year, sometimes five or six grade levels in one year. It was just amazing to see. And this was just our little school, two teachers doing the same thing, but one adding in this mindset work. And it was just amazing because it totally changed the kid's performance. And she didn't really do that much other stuff. But but that's where having that belief in yourself and knowing who you are and why you're valuable matters so much for everybody. And I want to adjust this conversation a little bit to mental health and how you deal with that uh, in your school as well. And having, you know, making a broad generalization again, having a bunch of girls all going to school together creates its own kind of drama and issues, not to mention the pandemic, not to mention all the other things that are going on in our world. How do you approach this topic of mental health with the kids that you're working with? Okay. So what I'm going to do is just adjust your first bit first and then I'll go into the mental health section. That Um, works. (laughs) The idea around mindset, I think, is really interesting. And of course, the first research, highly unethical research now, of course, was the Pygmalion in the classroom research Mm -hmm. from the 60s, you know, where they told, they had, they assessed children's IQ, they, they put them across three different classes and then they told and, um, you know, distributed them equally, like randomly across three different classes. And then told each of the teachers that the child was either high ability, normal ability, or low ability. And the teachers' expectations directly informed how these children performed, regardless of their initial IQ. Um, something you couldn't do now <laughs> um, from an ethical point of view. However, it is interesting that that still exists. And this ties time with mental health as well. What is worth knowing, though, that there's a whole lot of barriers that happen in life that little people have no control over, regardless of their mindset, right? And that's where you go, they are still young people. So the onus is on us as the adults to ensure that we are constantly challenging the stereotypes and the barriers that young people face so that they at least have the opportunity of developing this mindset around how they're going to navigate their way through life. And those obstacles are some of them are endemic, they're systemic, um, you, you, they're, they're not easily challenged, but even just educating young people about what they are so they recognise them. I want to share something that I am sponsoring, which is the Equity Awards. Transformative Principles proud to sponsor the inaugural Excellence in Equity Awards presented by the American Consortium for Equity in Education. This award program, designed to spotlight and celebrate high-impact work across K-12 education, features 27 different award categories covering all angles of equity. Ten categories for educators and support staff from every role in our schools, and 17 categories for companies and nonprofits. I'm sponsoring the leadership category, naturally. Educators of all roles and backgrounds, including school and district leaders, technology leadership, teachers, mental health professionals, librarians, and media specialists, and more, can self-nominate or nominate a colleague. All companies and nonprofits, including publishers and authors, can submit nominations as well. You can find all the information at ace-ed.org slash awards. That's ace-ed.org slash awards. Get your nominations in before June 30th.
my big thing around teaching young people, which I do with our girls, is I do teach them about power, to how to recognize what power looks like in the room when you're having a conversation. What are the things that that person did that subtly let you know that you were under them versus and they were more dominant from you? How do you shake hands? What what kind of um what kind of a facial expression do people have? What does power look like in the workplace when you go and get a job, right? So once you teach and educate young people, they can learn to step back a bit from the situation, not be as emotionally affected, even though they might obviously be hurt or gratified or whatever, but stand back and go, okay, what's happening here? What? Who has the power? How are they wielding it? What does that look like? Am I being played? Am I playing somebody? Um, you know, like it's a really interesting thing to help young people recognize the obstacles even if we can't get over them or through them um, easily you know and I think the onus is on us as adults to make sure that we create environments where we are educating young people about that. I find that the mental health argument I mean if you translate it to physical health there's good and bad mental health Um, so mental health itself is not a neutral well mental health itself is a neutral term. The obsession that we have and this is probably on wobbly ground, I find the language around mental health in young women to be highly problematic. They are not allowed to be sad anymore. They're always depressed. They're not allowed to be worried. They're always anxious. The pathologizing of adolescence more broadly, I think, is a real challenge as a society because the reality is that young people do look to adults for cues as to how to behave. And we've just come off and we've just, you know, like two years of, of COVID lockdowns in our country, you know, um, we were all locked down and we we're all doing remote learning. And um, and that was on the back of two years of um, political uh, noise from America, mm-hmm. um, you know, where anxiety levels in the community were, were going really, um, were, were escalating. And so you have a society of really anxious people, adults. And then you also have a group of young people, the next generation, who are looking to the adults about how do we behave and what they see are adults who are scared and anxious and running around like headless chooks and and taking offence and escalating. Everything is escalated. The sense of outrage and and, uh, judgment is palpable. And then we look to the young people and we go, oh, we're worried about you. Are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling anxious? You know, and, and we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember what I said about Pygmalion in the classroom? Little people look to adults as, as for clues and cues as to how to behave when they're in situations that they have not experienced or expected before. And what they see is the adults behaving like children while the ch- children are trying to behave like adults. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that just goes, can we just stop? Can the adults grow up just a little bit and remember that it's not just about us, that we actually have a responsibility in this next generation? And I'm not talking about mindlessly saying everything's going to be okay because I, I get that things are complex, but also not treating these children like they should know what they're doing. So I look at it and I go, I think we have a great responsibility to the young people in our care to role model how complex life is and how everything is ultimately going to be okay. You, you need to engage. You have agency around this stuff. When it comes to young women, 
young women are no more or less dramatic than young men. You would never know it because it doesn't feed into the mm-hmm. stereotype views <laughs> of young women. Um, the bulk of them, if they are around people with common sense and who are grounded, are themselves um, grounded and show a lot of common sense. I, a number of our young women came out of COVID really valuing face-to-face friendships, uh, not you know, have come off social media platforms because they have recognised the limitations of them or are a lot more lim- – I see a lot of young people, both men and women, showing a lot more restraint, frankly, than adults who I see texting as they walk along with, you know, yeah. kids in tow. So I don't think having women together, I see no evidence if they're in an environment that is role modelling what good adult behaviour looks like, I see no evidence of kids being overly dramatic or their mental health suffering. I see a lot of evidence of pathologising of adolescents, both male and female, but particularly females. Yeah, I, I find that idea so fascinating because it really goes back to what our role is as educators, is that we teach kids how to behave or we teach kids how to be adults is maybe a better way to say that. And when we teach them with a negative example or an inappropriate way of doing things, they learn that also. And so when we, you know, especially as a principal dealing with discipline issues, if we teach them that you make a mistake and it goes on your permanent record and there's no hope for ever forgetting that, we're sending the wrong message, but we're definitely teaching them something. And so everything that we do is a lesson and kids are watching and they're paying attention and they're saying, how do I deal with this? And I think you, you gave a really good example of how kids can be more resilient than we give them credit for. They can overcome the challenges they face more than we give them credit for, because we think that, you know, things must be so hard. And, you know, when we say that to them, Oh, this must be really hard for you. If they weren't thinking that before, then they're certainly thinking it after we say that. And they're like, oh, I should be more of a victim here. Is that what you're telling me? And <laughs> That's not helpful. The other thing is that, I mean, there are students, young people who have genuinely poor mental health and real mental health issues, but we do an extraordinary disservice when we write off an entire generation to those who are genuinely struggling, right? Because all of a sudden, everybody's in this basket. And I'm like, okay, just stop. I get that life is hard, you know, like if if you, you know, read what the Stoics went through, if you read, there are 150 Psalms in the Bible, 148 of them are going, woe is me, life sucks, right? It, it is complicated and we do them an enormous disservice when we go, life should be perfect. Oh, it's not, that's really bad, you know, that's awful. But equally, we're not um, pandering to this. We're also saying, yeah, life is complex, walk with me. And and let me show you, I don't do it perfectly. Like I get up in assemblies and I um we have assemblies here. I don't know if you guys do, but um, you know, every week we're and and if I've blown, I will go, I am so sorry. Like I, I didn't do this one well, but I need to hear what you're wanting to say. And now equally I go, they're they're also children, right? So this is the this is the art of the good educator. There's something um that was developed, I think, in the nineteen sixties again, I can see you sound obsessed with the 1960s, called transactional analysis, which is how you interact and you you relate to people. And it's either as a parent, adult, or a child. And your goal is to have adult, adult. So when you're dealing with young people, my conversations with you, I assume adult, adult, right? I don't 
treat you as if you're a child. You don't treat me like I'm a parent. If I throw a temper tantrum, doesn't matter how old I am, I'm acting like a child, you know. And and I look at young people and I go, my goal and my, my starting point is adult, adult. But if they don't have the ability to do that, if they're acting like a child, well, then, yeah, sure. I mean, there are boundaries, there are expectations, there are consequences to poor behaviour. We'll put that in. But I'm constantly looking to recalibrate it back to adult, adult. And what you find, particularly with adolescents, is that as they grow up, they start off, well, I mean, some kids are kind of adult, almost from primary school, right, from elementary school. Mm-hmm. But but you look at them and slowly but surely, they, your goal is for them to spend most time in adult, adult. But to recognise that if someone pulls rank on them, they're trying to be a parent and the instinctive thing then is to go and act like a child and you have to stay at the adult level. Mm. And that's that's the essence, I think, of a good educator, regardless of what you're teaching them, about how do you, how do you teach them to be ultimately a good adult. Well, I, re- I really like that, the way you describe that, because it it describes how we want to have a positive, healthy relationship with our students but it's not appropriate to be a friend to our students, right? And there's a difference there. And that's what I appreciate about how you illustrated that is that it's adult to adult rather than friend to friend or teenager to teenager or child to child, because it emphasizes that we need to have boundaries. We need to have respect. We need to treat each other appropriately. And I think that that really illustrated for me the, the way that I would like to phrase that going forward, that strong, healthy, positive relationships are adult to adult. And anything less than that is not a strong, healthy relationship. Even the teacher-child or principal-child is not really a healthy relationship. I was going to say, well, because you don't want to stay in that zone, right? Right. Like the the whole point is, yes, and and here's the thing about young people. They're clever. I mean, they're getting the best education these days. I mean, I get not everyone, but by and large compared throughout history, best education you've had in history is happening now. They're clever, but they're not wise, Mm -hmm. okay? And they can't be wise until you've started to have life experiences and learned how to navigate your way through. So this idea about what you're actually teaching them is, yes, you're teaching the facts and the rules and and this is what we do and this is what you need to know, but you're also, you're not going to be there at the party on Saturday night when someone offers them a herbal supplement because it's all natural. You you want them to be there going, oh, wait on, actually, arsenic's natural. I don't want to take that, you know, like you want them to be wise, you want them to be able to um, navigate situations that I can't even begin to imagine that they're going to find themselves in, right? Because I'm not going to be with them every step of the way. I can, I can um, manage the the culture within a school environment about how we say good morning and we look. We've got an, a bit of an old-fashioned school, so we have adult students and adults have to stand up if another adult walks into the room, like it's a respect thing. You have to say good morning. You have to um, – there, there are kind of rules. But once they leave school, I, I'm not there when they're in the office with the boss, when the boss puts his hand on her knee and goes, mm-hmm. come on, you know, can you stay a little bit late tonight? Or actually what you, you'll be picking up is that these things apply to men and women, right? So, yeah. So – I'm I am focused like most educators, you know, they're like general practitioners, we call them here in Australia, like they're general doctors, family doctors or whatever. You know, they do a little bit of everything. 
But every now, but you also have doctors who specialize in the heart. You have specialized in the kidneys, right? You specialize in this. And no one has any issue with that. I just happen to specialize in girls, right? So, mm-hmm. but general, general medicine, the same rules apply. We're trying to raise young men and women who, when they're in situations where we're not around and the adults aren't there, they have enough wisdom and enough nouns to know how to navigate their way through that from a position of strength. Yeah. And did you say they have enough wisdom and enough nerves? Is that what you said? Yeah, nerves, like, inte- like thoughtful intelligence um, about how to get through a situation that they have not seen before, they have not experienced, and they don't have someone there with them going, well, gosh, you should take the fork to the left, you know, as opposed to the one on the right. So, and that's where I'm kind of going. They're clever. It, it's like on social media, right? Like they – you know, so many adults abdicate their responsibility here by going, oh, you know, I just don't know what they're doing online. Right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know what? They're incredibly clever online, but are they wise? Oh, not really. Not not to start with. They'll get burnt, you know, and, and the thing is you don't want these kids getting burnt. You, you want them to understand and be wise that just because there's a 16-year-old boy at the other end of the line, you haven't seen his face, you don't know him, maybe he's 16, maybe he's 63, you know, like, so you want wisdom in there and that Mm. takes adults. There's this great line and I don't actually know who says it, but it goes, we're all just walking each other home. And and I look at my, the young people who, um, you know, are at my school, I've got about 1,300 of them, which is small compared to some schools, but big compared to others. And But with these 1,300, I'm just walking them and their families home. You know, I, I, I'm no better, no worse, no anything. I'm just on the road. But I've learned a lot over my time because I've been exposed to a lot of young people, a lot of families who are navigating, you know, tough times. And you're just walking alongside them, you know, mm-hmm. until you're in a position where you go, yeah, they're, they're okay. They're, they'll be be good. We're playing a long game in education. We sow yeah. seeds that may not, you know, come to bear for 30, 40 years. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. It really is a long game. Now, uh, one of the other things that Tracy Ezard said that I should talk to you about is that you run the Renaissance Women's Network. And so tell us a little bit about that and what that means and how that applies to what we've been talking about. Okay, well, this actually kind of applies more broadly to education. What I'm finding, uh, and partly this is the culture that we're in, education is a profession, and by that I mean it's not a trade. Uh, we There's a certain body of knowledge, and as professionals we contribute to that body of knowledge as we're working our way through. For me, for example, I you know did four years of an undergrad. Um, you know, I've got my master's, I've got my doctorate. Um, I have the same number of qualifications as a specialist doctor, but you would never know that uh, because the people who speak on behalf of the profession, certainly in Australia, are politicians. They are other people uh, and teachers and their ability to influence their world and contribute to the profession and to be generally heard and believed is increasingly problematic. So there are a lot of debates in education, single-sex versus co-ed schools, um, whole word versus phonics, um, you know, there, there's a how do you teach literacy, you know, um, there's a thousand different arguments that you could have as there are in any profession around how we do things. What I find in education, though, is that it, within nanoseconds that defaults to societal debate around things that people actually know nothing about but have no issue telling people how to run schools, what they should do, 
if you just did this, if you just did that. And I'm like, you actually know nothing. So partly what we're setting up the Renaissance Women's Leadership Network, or it would be on par with me walking into an operating theatre and saying to the surgeon, look, thanks very much. You know, I had a surgery once. I really don't think you should right. use that scalpel. I think <laughs> you should use this one over here. And I do think the wall should be painted green, not pink. Uh, and really, I really don't like the gown you're wearing. Perhaps we could change those as well. You know, it's like, who are you? No, no surgeon in their right mind would tolerate that. And yet in education, it's like everything we do is open to debate, even when it's actually got a strong theoretical foundation. So skip forward. One of the things we recognize is that particularly in education, uh, we wanted women leaders who were often reluctant to apply for promotional positions, um, who would often, um, you know, kind of go, yes, you know, I'm juggling so many other things. I don't, I'm not going to apply. And I just went, you know what? Enough. You can't complain that there is no voice and there is no agency if you're not prepared to do it. So we set up the Renaissance Women's Leadership Network. And the whole purpose of that was to empower inspiring and aspiring women leaders. So young women and older women who just needed to be pushed over the line, frankly, about, come on, you need to apply for this job. You actually do know what you're talking about. Uh, you need to go for it. And we wanted to create a space where you could do that. Now, men come to this um, because I think we do recognise that while, while education is still predominantly a feminised profession, as in there are more women than men, it, but there are far more men in the leadership roles than there are women. So we wanted to be able to say, okay, let's just kick butt a little bit here and you need to start owning it. You're actually very good at what you do. And so we get people in who have um, navigated obstacles themselves and they've gone this is how we've done it this is what we do yes you should apply and we've we're also um unlike i I guess parts of the world we have a very strong um different sectors in education so we have state education we have independent education we have religious based education philosophical based education you know and so all these different sectors and of course mostly any conversation around education is them all fighting with each other, right? Mm-hmm. And so the whole point and, and about stuff that actually doesn't matter. But anyway, and so what we did with this network was to get everyone in regardless of what sector. We just didn't care. We go, if you love education, and and what was really telling there was just how grateful people were just to talk about the profession, talk about their roles, talk about how they can contribute and we just refuse to go political. And it's so much fun because what it means is you go in and you go, oh, man, let me tell you about my term. And because I'm a principal, I can, I think sometimes people think principals have it easy. And I would argue that principals probably have less power than just about anyone, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so you're in this position where you go, oh, okay, this happened, this happened. And, and you learn to laugh about it with like-minded souls. And the only thing that's really like-minded is they want to talk about what they love, which is education. Mm-hmm. And and that's what we do. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um, so my final question to you, Brownie, is what is one yeah. thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal like you? Truthfully, probably get some sleep. <laughs> I, I do think most people who go into education, most principals who go into education, and, and I really love the fact that you're fucking on principals because by their nature, principals will instantly default to teachers and students and they don't even stop long enough in on the square that says actually I'm a principal what does this mean the pressures that principals have been under particularly over the last two years but I would argue the two years before that and particularly in your part of the world where politically it has been so challenging 
and there have been so many social issues that have played out in schools where, where principals are expected to navigate those that it is exhausting right and it is exhausting being all things for all people it is exhausting not being able to vent the way other people are allowed to vent uh, you lose the right to get offended when you're in leadership in school leadership and the expectation that you will continue to give and give and give and it's your nature to give and give and give so you're half the problem right like you know, I'm talking to the principals out there that this I this idea that you will be all things to all people is probably running a bit dry now you know and because what people are wanting is actually insatiable what they're wanting is certainty what they're wanting is peace what they're wanting is are things that you actually can't give them, even in a school setting. So I look at it and I go, what is the first thing that goes? Well, actually, um, sleep, time for yourself, time to get fit, time to get healthy. Most principals are extremely passionate, wonderful, beautiful people who will give themselves. I'll tell you an example um, of, of what I think it's like. You know, if you do a blood test for calcium. There is no blood test for calcium. This is I'm hoping this is true. But anyway, it's a good thing if it's not sadistically. <laughs> you can't do a blood test for calcium because if the body needs calcium, it just draws it from the bones. Right. So whenever you, everyone's calcium levels are just fine, thanks very much. But your bones start to leach. And you look fine and you're really good until you're not, until the bones break. And I do think that a little bit with principles. You give and give and give and it comes at a cost. And that cost is leaching you. And you have to stop and you have to refuel. You have to sleep. You have to be able to do those things that allow you to be the creative, transformative, beautiful person that you are in this role. And some of them are burning out so hard and so fast, they're not even aware of that. They're not even aware of the signs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I would say. You want to be an awesome principal, get some sleep. Yeah. That's great advice. I I thank you for being part of Transformative Principle. This has been an awesome conversation and thank you for your insight and your wisdom and sharing it with all of us today. It's just made my day. So thank you very much. It's been a joy. Thank you, Jedra. Do you want to simplify your school's technology? save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.